So we polled earlier and asked how many people attended the retrovirus meeting, and uh, about 20% um, uh, or 10% or so did, and 20% have already been to a review, but a lot of you haven't. And so today we have uh, uh, Dr. David Hardy, who had been on the West Coast at UCLA and at Cedar sinai for many years involved in the early days of the HIV epidemic there, but more recently has moved east. He's now here in D.C. at the uh, Whitman Walker Clinic, uh, where he has a senior leadership position. He's also a professor of medicine at uh, George Washington University uh, in their ID division. Um, and today we've asked him to come in and give us a CROI update. And again, I want to emphasize that um, uh, we coordinate the talks pretty carefully. There may be one or two slides that bleeds from one talk to another, but we try to make sure that he was kind of providing a safety net um, kind of talk where he's picking up things that are not being covered elsewhere during the program. So David, welcome. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, I just want to say, first of all, thank you to the organizers. This is my first time to get to be a part of the IAS USA CROI or CROI review for me, but for the HIV annual update here in Washington, D.C. And it's great as a non-full-time academic, but from a community health center, like a colleague of mine that's going to speak in a couple of more uh, down the road, to be able to be part of this very illustrious and very academic-based sort of uh, HIV update. I want to take a shout out to all my Wetman Walker uh, colleagues who are here today and also from GW. Thanks for coming. Great for the support. And let you know that kind of what I'm trying to do today is kind of what I call the smorgasbord presentation. Because unlike a single topic, I'm going to kind of jump around a lot. Croy, for those of you, the 20% who, who attended or have attended, know that it's a very big conference, a very busy, busy conference. Uh, there were 1,100 abstracts out of 5,000, about 2,500 that were submitted. So it's a very selective conference as well. Probably some of the best research in HIV is presented there. And it's becoming more and more clinically oriented as well. So what I've tried to do is stay away from a lot of basic science, unless there is some sort of clinical uh, applicability down the road, and really kind of focus on things that may be of some uh, interest to you now or interest to you soon in terms of your clinical practice. Here are my um, uh, commercial, excuse me, here are my financial relationships. Here are some resources that you may want to just uh, jot down because these are the now online um, ways to be able to look at abstracts from CROI, video, video cast as well, webcasts that are really helpful if there's a particular area that you're more interested in to be able to get these uh, electronic materials because there's something that um, can be really helpful if you want to do more because you can actually kind of go to CROI yourself by being there with the webcast and some of them with the slides at the same time. So my learning objectives are pretty straightforward and that is to describe the current status of an unmet goals of PrEP for HIV in the U.S. I hope to complement what Dr. Bookbinder has already told you to discuss new research for preventing and treating tuberculosis and HIV-positive patients, and to describe data regarding new treatment approaches for hepatitis C in HIV-positive persons. So first of all, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, you've already heard a huge amount 
from Dr. Bookbinder about this topic. But what I'm going to try to do is sort of complement what she, what she presented to you already and talk to you about kind of what our PrEP rollout in the U.S. has really been doing. <clears throat> so before we get, I do that, I'm going to give you an audience response question that asks um, about which of the following statements regarding PrEP for HIV is not true. The CDC recently increased the estimates of how many MSM in the U.S. are eligible for PrEP for HIV. Black or African-American MSM make up the largest number of persons estimated to be eligible for PrEP in the, for HIV in the U.S. The rule out of PrEP for, PrEP for HIV in the U.S. has followed the demographics of those persons estimated by the CDC to be at risk for HIV acquisition or potentially safer as well as long longer-acting medications uh, than tenofovir DF are currently being studied for PrEP. So make your choices from those. Which one is not true? Pick the one that is not true. Smart group, smart group. Uh, that, the 60% that chose the rollout of PrEP has followed the demographics are, is, are exactly right as being the wrong or the not true answer. The right answer because it is not true. And I'll go into more details about that in just a second. All other answers are in fact true. So um, the CDC in its wisdom, as you all know, put out the uh, PrEP guidelines in 2014. In 2015, based upon national HIV and U.S. demographics, they made some uh, estimates of how many persons in the U.S. are, are eligible for, for PrEP, particularly based upon the different risk groups uh, who we know are, are at risk for HIV infection. But they came back later on and said using national data really isn't very good because the risk is different among different groups around the United States. And you really can't use one sort of census to do that. So what they did is they went back and they actually kind of drilled it down to the states and to local communities. And, and what they tried to do, at least at the state level, is to estimate more on a state-by-state -state basis how um, many MSM might be susceptible, might be eligible for PrEP because of risk activities. They first of all did this with MSM because it's the largest group of individuals at risk. And they looked at this <clears throat> at e on a state basis and then took their previously determined percentage of individuals who are MSM and at risk of 24.7%, almost 25%, um, uh, and on a state-by-state -state basis came up with that as the, as the percentage of individuals in those states who are MSM who would be at risk. Once they got that number, they used it to then also estimate the same numbers for heterosexuals and persons who inject drugs by taking the state-based ratio of new cases of HIV in each one of those jurisdictions or states based upon heterosexuals versus MSM or person who inject drugs versus MSM and came up with new uh, estimates, again, for uh, heterosexuals and persons who inject drugs. And what you see here is that compared to the old estimates from 2015 there at the bottom of the slide, that there was a significant increase from 492,000 up to 814,000 MSM thought to be at risk for PrEP, be at risk for HIV and eligible for PrEP a decrease among heterosexuals from over 600,000 to just under 300,000, and also a decrease in person who inject drugs. So 
from over 115,000 to 73,000. The total number decreased a little bit, but actually it was pretty much the same. And I think this is something that the CDC is now using to be able to better target um, where PrEP should in fact be uh, focused. They also looked at, based upon uh, state level based demographic data, um, looking at the different uh, three risk populations, looking at, uh, across black African American, Hispanic Latino, and white non-Hispanic. And what you see there is really a reiteration of what we have also heard before from Dr. Bookbinder is that highest risk groups re remain African American for both MSM and for heterosexual, uh, lower for, for white MSM and white heterosexuals, um, but a little higher, interestingly, for white persons who inject drugs. And that's a, an area where there was a bit of a shift. But again, I think this really kind of broke it down to say where does the emphasis need to be in terms of really focusing PrEP rollout. And to that end, they also tried to do an estimate, a preliminary estimate at least, of minimum PrEP coverage by U.S. region or state by race, race and ethnicity based upon uh, the best information that they could get in terms of PrEP prescriptions. And what they found going from Northeast, Midwest, South, and West was that there was the highest rollout in PrEP for white individuals and the lowest rollout of PrEP among African American or blacks and the next lowest among Hispanics. And this is something I think really points the, po points the finger to the fact that we know where the highest estimates are for a rollout of PrEP, but they're not getting there. And in fact, nationwide, only 14% of whites, 1% of blacks, 3% of Hispanic, and 8% of persons overall who have estimated to have indications for PrEP are actually getting it. So we have a lot more work to do. I'm gonna show a slide that Dr. Bookbinder did not because it actually is her slide from her study that actually looked at uh, the uptake of PrEP in a city that has really great efforts at being able to treat and prevent HIV, San Francisco. And what they did in this is look at the uh, primary care clinic uh, system uh, from the San Francisco Department of Public Health, primary care clinics in San Francisco, and be able to identify by race and age the disparities for the rollout of PrEP in that city. Um, they defined high-risk individuals by those who were HIV negative, who had not been prescribed PrEP, and were screened for rectal STD or had a diagnosis of syphilis within the last year, or had received at least three HIV tests in the last two years, indicating that the provider was in fact considering HIV as a risk factor. They looked at uh, 451 patients who received PrEP, those who had gotten it, and over 2,000 who had identified at high risk but who had not gotten it. And what they found actually that patients who were highly or significantly less likely to be on PrEP were those who were Latino or African-American, high-risk patients, high-risk women, and also patients over 50. So even in a city like San Francisco where there has been a good and high uptake of PrEP and rapid treatment, disparities and uptake remain and additional interventions are really needed, even in what we consider to be one of our best. And I can just add from our experience here in D.C., uh, Whitman Walker has had a very large rollout of PrEP for several years, starting back in 2013 with our first PrEP uh, uh, demonstration study. And we have now, we estimate we, we have somewhere around 1,200 patients on PrEP. Um, initially, those were primarily gay white men. Increasingly, they are persons of color, transgender women, and some women, but those numbers still remain much lower than what the estimates are, very similar to what is happening in, in San Francisco. So just to give you a little peek into the future in terms of what might be coming down the road, Dr. Um, <clears throat> Bookbinder already mentioned that 
TAF is being studied in, humans, in human trials, both in the U.S. and in Africa, as a means to try to prevent uh, HIV infection with perhaps a less toxic medication. We've already seen uh, a study that actually demonstrated that rectal uh, trying to infect uh, rhesus macaques rectally uh, who were given TAF ahead of time did work in terms of preventing HIV, but what about women? What about women? Because as you heard, preventing HIV infection in women is not the same as preventing HIV infection in men. So in this study, they actually had to use a different kind of monkey. They couldn't use rhesus macaques for this, but used pigtail macaques, all female, of course, and, and gave them repeated exposures to a low dose of a uh, HIV, of a shiv, a, a virus that is HIV on the inside, but uh, simian or monkey on the outside, so it will infect the monkeys. Um, and then also gave them uh, TAF 24 hours before the exposure and two hours after. They did this with six monkeys with TAF and with um, six monkeys with placebo. And they repeated this weekly over 16 weeks. So what they found basically is only one of the monkeys actually um, in the TAF group was infected with HIV after repeated uh, 16 weekly uh, uh, infections. Uh, and, but even more so of the placebo monkeys. So this did in fact provide an 82% decline or pre prevention of, uh, of HIV acquisition in the female monkeys uh, with TAF. So it wasn't perfect, but it was very similar to what was seen with the rectal administration. So again, this actually is, is I think, showing some good information about what TAF's possibilities may be. Another medication that you may hear, hear a little bit more about later on today from Dr. Aaron is an exciting new type of medication called MK8591, a nucleoside transcriptase translocation inhibitor worked in a different way than some of our other medications, although similarly, and I won't say too much more about it than that, but it has a very long half-life. And so it has become a potential PrEP candidate as well, an oral PrEP candidate that could be in fact be dosed on a weekly uh, basis. Uh, previously, Dr. Markowitz actually had demonstrated that in rhesus macaques who got a dose of 3.9 milligrams per kilogram of this by oral, uh, the root, that there was 100% protection against the monkeys who were being then rectally uh, inoculated with a type of uh, shiv virus. They then wanted to see what the lowest dose that they could use, and this was presented at Croy. So they decreased the dose from 3.9 mg per kg down to 1.3 and then finally down to 0.43 milligrams per kilogram and found that at this dose there was still um, very good 100% protection. It wasn't until they got the dose down to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, a very tiny dose, that two out of eight animals got infected. And the important thing about this is that this actually would equate to a human dose uh, somewhere between uh, 250 micrograms per week or 10 micrograms per day for human uh, treatment. So this may in fact be something that we'll look for in the future as a new PrEP candidate as time goes on as well. So let's move on to tuberculosis. Um, how many of you have actually treated a case of TB recently? Some, great. So as you know, TB is really not as big of a problem certainly here in the United States as it is around the world because in fact TB is one of the primary causes of death to persons who are HIV positive especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. So let's do an audience response question to kind of get us ready for this. The prevention of tuberculosis in persons living with HIV is of great importance. So please choose the treatment regimen or regimens which has or have been shown to be effective in treating latent tuberculosis infection 
or LTBI in persons living with HIV infection. So this is a, a regimen of, 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 of an antibiotic we would give to the person who has evidence or high suspicion of being exposed to tuberculosis but does not have active TB infection currently. So is this INH 300 milligrams daily for uh, nine months, rifampin 600 milligrams daily for two months, the combination of INH 300 milligrams plus rifapintin somewhere between 450 and 600 milligrams daily for only one month, Asfambiotol 1200 milligrams plus rifampin 600 milligrams for two months are both one and three. Great. Maybe it was a little too obvious the way the, Christian, way the question was structured, because I only had one double answer. Uh, for the 47, almost half of you, that percentage that chose that, you are in fact right. The classic 300 milligrams for nine months of INH has, has been used by most of us for a long period of time. But at CROI, there was very good evidence that demonstrated that the combination of 300 milligrams of INH plus a weight-based dose between 450 and 600 milligrams of rifapintin for only one month was, in fact, effective prevention of tuberculosis in HIV-positive persons. And I'll show you the slide now. This is one of the big, big uh, bits of information that came out of CROI. It is a, a study of two different networks, a TB network, global TB network, and also the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, and they call it A5279 study, in which they took <clears throat> almost 3,000 individuals in a phase three open label study design who had a positive TB skin test or a positive IGRA, a positive um, TB um, uh, interferon gamma release assay, or lived in a high TB incidence country. 54% of these 3,000 individuals were female. Their median CD4 cell count was 470. Half were on antiretroviral therapy, which was limited to either efambutol, I'm sorry, either efavirenz or nivirapine only and 80% of those individuals were in fact undetectable. They were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the standard control treatment of INH 300 milligrams daily for nine months or randomized one-to-one -to, -one to INH 300 milligrams daily plus rifapintin dosed at between 450 and 600 milligrams based upon weight. The uh, uh, graph to your left basically shows what happens over the, over the five-year follow-up of this study, which basically showed that there were the almost equal number of cases of tuberculosis that occurred incidentally after this treatment was given. Um, these include not only TB cases, but also um, death due to TB or any death as well. And so the incidence case rate was in fact very similar between the two uh, uh, um, treatments. Both regimens were in fact well tolerated, although the toxicities did differ. As you might expect, the, uh, the uh, INH rifapintin arm had more hematologic toxicity, but only 2.4%, and the nine months of INH had more liver and neurotoxicity at about 2.8%. So this does, in fact, offer something easier for and less expensive now for patients to be able to use to prevent TB for those who are at risk. I'm going to show a couple more slides now that in, in, involve tuberculosis treatment, but now also with the added interaction with antiretroviral agents. Many of you already know that when dolutegravir is estimated is 
thought to be given, or planned to be given, I should say, with a rifampin-based regimen for tuberculosis, the dose of uh, dolutegravir has to be doubled from 50 milligrams once a day to 50 milligrams BID. So in a, uh, a fairly large um, phase three study, and this is an interim analysis from this uh, open label randomized trial that has been done in uh, several countries, including South Africa, Brazil, Peru, uh, Mexico, Russia, Argentina, and Thailand, and individuals who um, were being tr treated for tuberculosis and, and HIV concomitantly, they found that after uh, a minimum of at least um, eight weeks of anti-TB therapy with four drugs and then two drugs after that, the patients were randomized to receive either a Favrins-based regimen or a double-dose dolutegravir-based regimen. This was really a, a, a clinical uh, testing of whether or not those pharmacokinetic interaction data that were gleaned before from non-HIV positive persons really were in fact uh, true. 113 patients involved in, in this small study, and again, these are interim analyses. At 24 weeks of a 48-week study, what came out here in terms of virologic endpoints was in fact that the undetectable rate at 24 weeks was 81% with dolutegravir, 89% with efavirenz. There is no statistical analysis of this yet because these are interim analyses, and this is kind of a first look at that. They found that the individuals that did have a detectable virus <clears throat> in that 24-week period, uh, seven in the dolutegravir arm, three in the efavirenz arm, that of those seven, four, in fact, were individuals that um, either suppressed, were slow to suppress because of a very high viral load and had not yet become suppressed at week 24, but as time went on, they did become suppressed. It was probably the way the analysis was being done that made it look like they were just slow suppressors. Um, and what they did also find was that the dolutegravir concentrations did, in fact, with or without uh, the rifampin, hold up pretty well. So the information here is indicating that there's still good um, levels of dolutegravir at twice a day with rifampin as there is with the dolutegravir without the rifampin given just once a day. So more to be seen from this study, but so far it looks like that uh, dolutegravir can be given safely and treat, with, treat patients for tuberculosis at the same time. And how about TAF? TAF and rifampin, can these two medications be given as well? This was a phase one early study done in uh, evaluable in 21 healthy volunteers, and they received three different sort of regimens over 28 days each. They first received TAF by itself on a daily basis for the first 28 days. Then they received TAF plus rifampin, 600 milligrams, and then they received for 28 days, and then just tenofovir by itself for 28 days. And they looked at the pharmacokinetics of these 21 individuals at, at the three different periods of time. And basically what they found there at the, um, in the first um, box to your right, looking at the blue and the orange columns, was that there was a significant, about a 36% decrease in the area under the curve in TAF, I should say in intracellular TAF levels, meaning um, tenofovir um, uh, DP, um, when rifampin was given with TAF. So there was an effect of the rifampin on the TAF probably because of what's called efflux pumps, that rifampin increases the efflux of drugs out of the cell, and in fact, TAF is one of those. So there was about a 36% decrease, but when comparing the level of TAF with rifampin to tenofovir by itself, there was in fact only about a, um, a difference when it w of about 76%, uh, which did in fact demonstrate that they were still higher the TAF plus rifampin was still higher than tenofovir by itself. 
indicating that you would expect that these two drugs could, in fact, be given together okay, because you're still getting the same levels inside the cell as you would get if you were giving tenofovir by itself. So that's, I think, some good news from a phase one non-HIV patient study to show that these two drugs could probably be given safely together as well. And then finally, our newest um, integrase inhibitor, Bictegravir, uh, was also tried to be given at a twice daily uh, um, <clears throat> dose of uh, 50 milligrams twice a day with uh, rifampin. And they did, in fact, found in these healthy volunteers that there was, in fact, a 80% decrease in the trough levels of, of Bictegravir when it was given with rifampin and a 60% reduction in the overall exposure or the area under the curve. And the bottom line from this was, in fact, that these two drugs should not be given together because the levels of big tegravir just fall too much. HIV and pregnancy. There were a couple of good posters about this I thought might be of interest to, to all of us, uh, simply because this is something that, of course, continues to happen uh, around the world and, and here in uh, Washington, D.C. as well. I just heard that there actually were three cases that may have occurred earlier this year at Children's National Medical Center. So can dolitegravir be given in the third trimester of pregnancy? And if so, do you need to increase the dose of the dolitegravir because of the volume expansion that occurs during the third trimester of pregnancy? We know that for drugs like Kaletra and dolitegravir, excuse me, and darunavir, that was in fact something that has been done in the past. So this again is an interim analysis of a small study. They, they, are, they are giving uh, dolitegravir or Favrins plus two nukes to women with HIV who are presenting for treatment in the third trimester of pregnancy. So they're not coming in until late in their, uh, in their pregnancy to start HIV therapy. So what this data basically showed was they were comparing uh, the levels of dolitegravir um, washout over a, uh, about a 24-hour period of time during the tri third trimester when you would expect there would be increased volume uh, distribution of drugs uh, versus two weeks postpartum when that, in fact, has changed. And what they found basically in the first seven patients, and those blue lines are indicating that, po that during the third trimester and versus the orange lines there, which are largely only two so far, that there's really not a big significant difference between levels of uh, dolutegravir during third trimester versus after the pregnancy has uh, been, been delivered uh, compared to controls of individuals who are not pregnant. So it looks like, again, dolutegravir could, in fact, be given safely during pregnancy, and the dose does not have to be given uh, in, at an increased level. Again, this study has uh, more patients to enroll, uh, so this is just an interim analysis, but we'll act, look to see whether or not we know, can find out more about this as, uh, as more patients are, are treated and more data is gained. And then this was sort of an interesting study that, that, that I really had to go back and read a couple of times because this was a trial in which they were looking to see whether or not uh, pregnancy and also the stage of pregnancy in the postpartum period was, in fact, a risk factor for women acquiring HIV infection. So two large uh, studies, the Partners for Prevention and the Partners PrEP study, which enrolled over 8,000 uh, stereodiscordant couples, um, were in fact analyzed for this study. <clears throat> and what they did in this study was try to, to calculate or predict the per-sexual act risk of acquiring HIV for the HIV-negative women who were in a partnership with an HIV-positive man. Now, in one of the studies, there was, no there was no antiretroviral therapy used in either of these studies, but PrEP was used in half of the men or women 
um, in the Partners PrEP study, of course. What they found out of these 2,751 HIV-negative women in a stereoscorner relationship was that there were 78 incidents or new HIV infections uh, occurring <clears throat> during this period of time, which gave about a 22.4% pregnancy rate uh, for this go uh, during this period of time. And in a very uh, carefully constructed and also statistically evaluated uh, through different sort of uh, sensitivity models, they found that HIV acquisition per sex act was in fact threefold increased in late pregnancy and fourfold increased postpartum, even though the number of condomless sex acts decreased during the third trimester and during the postpartum period. <clears throat> so this was, I think, kind of interesting to show that there may be something biologic that's actually happening to a woman's body during that third trimester and during the postpartum period that actually is increasing her risk for acquisition of HIV infection. Finally, HIV and com comorbidities. For uh, many, many years, we have been hearing lots of things about how the new face of HIV is not so much control of viremia as it is about looking at non-HIV-related sort of uh, um, <clears throat> problems, metabolic, cardiovascular, neurologic, et cetera. So the HIV, the Swiss HIV cohort, which is an amazing sort of nationally-wide cohort of the entire country of people being followed, almost 9,000 individuals in their country who are HIV positive and being followed because the government treats them um, and can be doing this, looked at 403 individuals between the years of 2013 and 2016 if they were, in fact, over 45 years of age, uh, had no documented cardiovascular disease or had a stroke, had a GFR over 60, and no um, uh, cardiac dysrhythmias. Um, and they actually analyzed them for cardiovascular, for what they would call subclinical cardiovascular disease, indicating a coronary, um, um, uh, a coronary artery calcium score or a CT angiogram, which can look for plaque inside the coronary arteries. And what they found here was they uh, looked at the occurrence of these subclinical findings and associated that with different medications, the most common medications used in their country. First of all, they found that coronary artery calcium score is correlated with none of the medications whatsoever. There was no effect of any medications on increasing or decreasing coronary artery calcification. What they did find in terms of plaques, that there was an increased plaques, calcified plaques with Atazanavir, um, but also an increase, a 37% increase in non-calcified or mixed plaques with abacavir. And as many of you know, what is coming to be kind of the um, <clears throat> concerning type of plaque in, in, in most, in, in any individual at risk for cardiovascular disease, and now also found through other studies like the MAX, particularly uh, non-calcified or mixed plaque as a risk factor for coronary artery disease. Uh, is that kind of plaque exactly? And the only drug associated with an increased risk of that was, in fact, abacavir. So again, what this means exactly is something that we don't have a full picture of because this was not heart attacks. This was abnormal coronary artery um, <clears throat> angiograms. But this may actually be perhaps consistent with other things that have been found out about this medication. Um, the other thing that I found interesting here was the DAD, in its ultimate wisdom of following lots of people for a long period of time, wanted to see what the downstream uh, risk factors might be for persons who had already encountered a serious metabolic, or I should say, um, um, clinical problem of chronic kidney disease. 
and they followed these individuals who had this diagnosis beginning at 2004 <clears throat> through 2016 to see what happened after they had chronic kidney disease diagnosis and wanted to see whether there were any modifiable factors that could help prevent other diseases from occurring. So they, def they defined chronic kidney disease as a GFR less than 60 and had to be confirmed uh, by, with another measurement six month, three months apart, or if they already had a GFR less than 60, if there was a 25% decrease in the GFR after that. They use a centrally data-validated um, serious clinical event uh, definition and looked at cardiovascular disease, including myocardial infarction, strokes, and uh, cardiovascular procedures, end-stage renal disease, end-stage liver disease, AIDS-defining malignancies, non-AIDS-defining malignancies, and other kind of AIDS events or death. <clears throat> and they, if the second um, uh, serious uh, clinical event was the same as the first, they didn't actually look at it. So over time, what they found, and you can see there in the table to your right, that although the, the, the patients who, number of patients who actually had a serious clinical event was about the same, 18.5% versus 18.9%, that the incidence, however, was significantly higher by, by, by a factor of three in those individuals who had previous uh, uh, chronic kidney disease. And in fact, in those individuals, the most common problem that occurred after someone had chronic kidney disease was, in fact, death followed by a non-AIDS-defining malignancy, followed by cardiovascular disease, other AIDS events, and then end-stage renal disease, you might expect. But what the really interesting thing they did here is went back and looked at factors that were associated with this next event occurring and found that many of them were, in fact, modifiable. Number one was, in fact, control of HIV infection, that the patients were not having good control of their viremia. Number two was smoking. Number three was diabetes. And number four was hypertension. So a lot of these things are, in, are things that we can, I think, look at carefully and do something about to prevent that second or third event that then leads to death too often. Finally, I'll talk a little bit about HIV and hepatitis C. You're going to hear a lot more about this from Dr. Thomas in much more detail, so I'm just hitting some high points at this point. This was an interesting trial because I wanted, was interested in about the spontaneous clearance of acute hep C in persons with HIV. It's been well documented that in persons who are not HIV positive, that about 15 to 20% of them, when they're first infected with hepatitis C, will in fact clear the virus on their own. And in fact, the guidelines have always said, don't treat people who are first diagnosed as an acute event with hepatitis C for 12 weeks to see whether or not they might, they might clear the virus on their own before you think about treating them. So in this um, observational European cohort, that went for 10 years between 2007 and 2017, had about 460 patients in it. They identified individuals that had acute uh, hepatitis C virus based upon viral load being negative and then being positive. And they were all adults, of course. <clears throat> and what they looked at in terms of virologic outcome was that 12%, very similar to HIV negative numbers, uh, spontaneously cleared the virus with a median about 13 weeks uh, to the clearance of the virus. But then, of course, 88% had persistent viremia and then went on to develop chronic hepatitis C. Um, they did, in fact, treat these individuals and had about a 76% SDR rate, lower than you might expect, because there was a fairly large percentage of reinfections of about 17%. But the thing they found most interesting here that I really pulled out was the fact that a less than a two-log drop in hepatitis C RNA 
after four weeks of the diagnosis of acute hepatitis C was strongly predictive of chronic hepatitis C course, meaning that the viral load did not drop on its own within four weeks of the acute hepatitis C diagnosis, then they probably weren't going to clear the virus at all, and that gives you the go-ahead to start treatment at an earlier rate. So one thing I found interesting was that back in the days we used to use interferon or interferon plus ribavirin, that too long drop at four weeks was also very, very important in that if patients did not have at least a too long drop after four weeks of those two medications, oftentimes uh, people would, or hepatologists would say, why bother going on? The chances of them actually clearing the virus are going to be very, very small. And in this case, uh, there was a 97% clearance rate if they did, in fact, have that drop, and only three patients that didn't have the drop cleared the virus, 3% cleared the virus. So this seems to be a very important factor in terms of being able to predict who's going to clear the virus and who's not and who's going to need to get treated. The Dutch have a very, had an interesting um, study in which uh, this is the Dutch uh, acute hepatitis C NHIV study in which um, they used a brand new medication, glicaprevir and uh, betaprenosphere, uh, in 80 patients, basically just to see how it would work during acute HIV infection. And again, this was with uh, uh, hepatitis C genotypes 1 or 4, or it could have been actually any, because as I'm sure most of you know, glicaprevir and betaprenosphere, excuse me, um, is one of the first pangenotypic anti-hepatitis C medications that has been licensed. So this was a, 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 an opportunity to use this brand new medication in an acute and, and currently not indicated reason for acute HIV infect, acute hepatitis C infection in HIV positive individuals. Um, the interesting thing about these about this being done in Holland, 47, the average age was 47, 90% were white. Uh, 24% of these infections were reinfections that had occurred in common that were found acutely. Um, and uh, the other interesting thing here is that there was 91% of these individuals were also HIV co-infected, 100% were on ART, and there was a 98% uh, suppression rate, which is pretty amazing, I thought. So anyway, the medication was given for, <clears throat> for 12 weeks, and it did, in fact, uh, I'm sorry, eight weeks, excuse me, given for only eight weeks in acute therapy, um, and there was only one relapse. There was, in fact, a 98% um, suppression rate, SVR12, and the regimen was reported as being very well tolerated. So this, I think, is uh, just demonstration that a short course of a pangenotypic anti-hepatitis C medication does, in fact, work and is well tolerated. And then finally, back to the Swiss cohort, um, this is what I thought was a pretty cool study, indicating how actually population health may in fact actually have some big effects. Because we all know about HIV treatment as prevention. The French, I'm sorry, the Swiss were in fact testing the idea of HCV treatment as prevention in HIV positive MSM. So for the, um, uh, the between October 2015 and June of 2016, um, the cohort screened the MSM for presence of hepatitis C PCR. This was 3,722 3, individuals out of the 9,000 in the cohort. They found that 4.8% had a positive hepatitis C RNA, about 170 square individuals, and this was incident or brand new infection in 30 and chronic in 147. They treated, right after this time, 132 of those 177 and had a 99% uh, SVR rate. They then looked at the next six, eight months after the treatment, 
did a rescreening of the MSM 3722 again for HCV PCR and found that the positive had dropped, positive rate had dropped from 4.8%, 177 individuals, down to 0.8%, and only 28 individuals, with only 16 of them now being incident and 12 of them being chronic, which then factored out to be a 49% decrease after treatment was occurring in incident infections and a 93% decrease in chronic infections. I think a thing that really pointed this pointed out was, as you saw in those first two studies uh, done from Europe, reinfection seems to be a very, a very uh, problematic situation for MSM in Europe who get hepatitis C once. There was anywhere between about a 14 to 24 percent reinfection rate in those acute studies. So this is, in fact, I think something that they are trying to do to address this by treating as many individuals as possible with the new DAA therapies and looking to see, at least initially, in this analysis, some effect on stopping the transmission of new HCV cases. I'm going to end there and say thank you very much. I think that's my last slide. And take questions you may have. Thank you. Well, we're getting a couple of uh, questions. Um, uh, David, Whitman Walker has been one of the big proponents in D.C. of expanding PrEP. What do you think the city needs to do to get PrEP utilized more widely than it is now? Because yeah. clearly we could do better. Sure, sure. Thanks, Henry. We thought about this a whole lot because even in, a, in an organization that treats primarily about, well, we treat about 30 percent of HIV positive and have a lot of HIV at risk individuals. Our own PrEP rollout has not been very good in terms of demographics. So what we are trying to do is, first of all, go into communities of color and really be able to assess, particularly among women, what their understanding and acceptance of PrEP is all about. One of the things I've learned is that most of the PrEP rollouts across the country and, of course, here in D.C. has been very much oriented to MSM, not to women. So, in fact, I think one of the things we have to do to get more women interested in PrEP is to feminize PrEP make it more acceptable to women, and perhaps link it to things that they feel more comfortable with, perhaps like birth control, that is a very common sort of thing. Even simple things that they're now doing in Africa, like packaging the PrEP in a nice pink-colored container, which does not look like a pill bottle, has in fact gained uptake in, that, in those countries. So I think making other populations who are at risk aware of PrEP and making it attractive to them is going to make a big difference. Among uh, African-American men, uh, particularly young African-American men, Latino men, uh, it's again been a challenge, but I think this again is, may have to occur as something in which we're getting the community to understand this and really try to create and get into those networks of individuals that can then pass the information on and make it something that is in fact not scary, but in fact acceptable to individuals by speaking the language they speak. Debating the uh, cardiovascular effects of the back of ear for probably a decade, you showed some intriguing new data, but does this make you any less enthusiastic about having any of your patients on a back of ear? <sighs> it doesn't really help my decision-making a whole lot, but I, I, I pulled that out because the Swiss had done such a great job of looking at non-clinical events. I must have spent a boatload of money on all those CT scans and angiography. 
Um, so it was worth kind of talking about. But again, it, it, it did surprise me that only one drug popped out in their analysis. And of course, they tried as best they could, and they apologized, of course, for this in the abstract in the presentation, was that they tried to see if there was any channeling of whether or not patients who were on abacavir were actually shuttled off of tenofovir because they had renal problems, which may also be a cofactor for cardiovascular problems. And they tried to do the same thing the DAD did by making alterations to the, uh, to the data to account for that, but they said they still saw the same thing. So maybe. Uh, there are a couple of questions about uh, why so many of the TB trials are done in Africa, and I think probably it's uh, clear that uh, most of the uh, cases there is easier to do a study. Do you think there's any, now that you've shown us one month data, uh, is there any role for uh, debating six months versus nine months of isoniazid, or are both of those regimens going to be irrelevant uh, if you can tolerate rifapentine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the, the, the great news from that <clears throat> study was just the fact that, I didn't mention this, but the completion rate was 97% for the individuals who got the one-month uh, regimen versus less than 85% uh, or excuse me, 77% for the individuals who got the nine month. So not only is it, I think, better in many terms of being uh, just as effective and having sim similar but different sort of side effects, but people will actually complete it because I think the nine months is a big problem for a lot of people. So rather than trying to keep working with INH, as long as, I mean, in this study, the tolerance of rifapentin was good yeah, for a month couple comments about that. One is, um, it's interesting, I, I approached the lead author, Dick Chasen, about whether, well, if it works in HIV-positive people, shouldn't we just translate this to HIV-negative? And it's interesting that his response was, no, we have to do a study in HIV-negative in order for this to, which I, which surprised me, because I just made the assumption that, that you know, um, in a higher-risk group, if it works, it would work in a lower-risk group. So, um, and then the other issue that's important about rifapentine is, is drug interactions with uh, integrase inhibitors. So everybody in that study, mm. as David pointed out, had to be on a Favrins or Nevirapine. You can use True. raltegravir, as I understand it, with once weekly rifapentine, yeah. but I'm not sure about dalutegravir or bictegravir yet. Um, so, so I think those things have to um, be worked out, uh, especially right. given how much integrase um, yeah. inhibitor we're using. Good point, good point, Joe. Thanks for bringing that in. There are a number of uh, questions about hepatitis C that I think we'll wait until Dave Thomas is uh, up here and uh, we'll readdress them. So maybe at this point, uh, Dr. Sag, you can come up and uh, uh, David, you and the rest of the panel can uh, uh, come up and uh, we'll see if uh, Mike Sag can uh, stump you over the next few minutes. So uh, 